The views expressed in this program are those of the participants. Ah, fantastic. How good of you to come. Prime Minister. Do sit down, won't you? Now, as you know, I've got to appoint a new governor for the Bank of England. I'd welcome your views. Well, I certainly think you should appoint one. <laughs> so who do you think I should appoint? Oh, well, as I say, that's uh, not easy. Not all that many chaps that chaps trust. I mean, it's not for me to say, but if one were to be asked, uh, as long as one were thought to be... Uh, of course, one is committed, but uh, if one were to be pressed, I dare say one could make oneself available. <laughs> as, a, as a duty one owes to... Um... I was thinking of Alexander James. Ah. <laughs> What's your view? Well, he's a good accountant. Honest? Yes. Energetic? I'm afraid so. <laughs> Would you recommend him? No. Why not? Well, city's a funny place, you know, Prime Minister. If you spill the beans, you open up a whole can of worms. <laughs> I mean, how can you let sleeping dogs lie if you let the cat out of the bag? <laughs> Bring in a new broom, and uh, if you're not careful, you'll find you've thrown the baby out with the bathwater. <laughs> If you change horses in the middle of the street, <laughs> next thing you know, you're up the creek without a paddle. And then the balloon goes up. Obviously. They hit you for six. <laughs> An own goal, in fact. <laughs> Welcome, everyone. It is Thursday, August 10th, 2023. I'm Bob Metz, and this is Just Right, broadcasting around the world and online. Join us for an hour of discussion that's not right-wing. It's Just Right. Fade into color, color into black and white. Under the bedclothes, everything will be alright. Of course, putting quote-unquote honest and energetic people in positions of power has always been the greatest fear of those in the deep state. After all, if you change horses in the middle of the stream, the next thing you know, you're up the creek without a paddle. <laughs> Which is exactly where those who are pursuing the latest round of indictments against Donald Trump are finding themselves. And they're doing everything they possibly can to keep Trump from speaking out and from defending himself because, after all, how can you let sleeping dogs lie if you let the cat out of the bag? As political rhetoric, the clichés that Sir Desmond spouted in our opener from the eternally insightful 1980s British comedy series, Yes, Prime Minister, make for infinitely more sophisticated rhetoric than the rhetoric we're hearing from the left today. The stupidity and shallowness of the trumped-up charges against the president bearing that name of Trump are so bizarre and inconsequential that I still have trouble taking it all seriously. But serious, it truly seems to be, as we shall learn right after our reminder that you can write us at feedback at justrightmedia.org. Hear us on WBCQ and on Channel 292 Shortwave. Follow and like us on your favorite podcast platform and visit us at justrightmedia.org where you can access all of our social media links, archive broadcasts, and the support button that makes it easy for you to support the show. Because as always, your financial support is appreciated and is what makes this show possible. 
Now, the following article I'm about to share with you was my inspiration for choosing today's broader theme that is essentially about the language and rhetoric of politics. And it appeared in my print edition of the National Post section of our local London Free Press on Friday, August 4th. When I saw the headline, I literally started laughing out loud because not only was it something that belonged in some kind of mad magazine spoof, but it was also obviously pure propaganda at its glaring worst. And that headline read, quote, Trump's guilt, it's all in his mind. January 6th indictment, case could hinge on whether he believed his lies. End quote. Well, that subheading, the case could hinge on whether he believed his lies, is pure BS and it's a, it's a contradiction. Look at what it says, just on the basis of that one sentence. It assumes that Trump's beliefs are not true. Think about it. If these purported lies are Trump's lies, his lies, then how could he possibly believe in them when he knows that they're lies? That's not possible. But the headline suggests that it is possible to actually believe that what you know to be a lie is true and that the case hinges on this contradiction to be proven in some kind of political court. <laughs> you see the obvious contradiction? The subheading at least should have read, case could hinge on whether Trump lied, not on whether he believed in anything. This is where this whole thing gets so bizarre. The article is written by Nick Allen, and I will quote, but I will break into the article from time to time, so I don't want to keep going quote-unquote all the way through, but here we go. Quote, <laughs> Washington. The criminal trial of Donald Trump on charges of trying to illegally overturn the 2020 election will hinge on whether he knew his claims of voter fraud were false. So you see what they're saying here. So thought crime is indeed now becoming a criminal offense. Prosecutors will have to prove mens rea, a guilty mind, or criminal intent, showing that Trump was lying when he told supporters he believed the election was stolen. Legal analysts were divided on whether the 45-page indictment from special counsel Jack Smith demonstrated that was Trump's state of mind. According to the charges, Trump quote-unquote did knowingly conspire to quote-unquote defraud the United States by quote-unquote spreading lies about the election result. These claims were false, and the defendant knew they were false, the indictment's first page declares, staking out the boundaries of what will probably be a high-stakes legal battlefield inside Trump's brain. <laughs> uh, literally, I can't, I can't believe I'm reading this. I mean, who cares if Trump's claims were false? They're just an opinion in that case, aren't they? After all, despite his beliefs, he didn't like, you know, stay in office or put barricades around the Capitol or have armed police and guards arrest anybody who disagreed with him, did he? Why does it matter what he thinks? He's not sitting there in power. He's just got an opinion. Anybody can say that. And always remember, the fundamental principle about censorship or trying to keep people silent is that only the truth is ever targeted. It never, ever is different than that. And only liars ever demand such silencing. I mean, that's been the theme of our last few broadcasts. The article continues. Trump was arraigned in Washington on Thursday afternoon on the new charges, his third indictment in three months. Brett Tolman, a former federal prosecutor, said Trump would be able to defend himself by saying he didn't buy the result and was therefore entitled to challenge it. Referring to the indictment, he said the most important element is the mens rea, a guilty mind. I don't see the intent here. 
You can put all kinds of whipped cream on manure and it's still manure. <laughs> now, that quote sounds like something from Sir Desmond in our Yes Minister cliche opener. Could have included that in his repertoire. <laughs> Tim Parlator, a former liar for Trump, said it's very hard to prove. Trump does truly believe there was fraud. He believed it then, he believes it today. It's an incredibly high mountain to climb for the prosecution. At trial, Smith needs to show that all of the false statements Trump made about the election, which the indictment chronicles in great detail, were understood by Trump to be false. Otherwise, it becomes a case about political speech and First Amendment rights, and that's not where the government wants to be, Robert Kiner, a veteran D.C. lawyer, told the Washington Post. Now, you know... It is difficult to reconcile any doubt about Trump's sincere beliefs regarding the stolen election, given that he has presented all kinds of evidence to the court of public opinion, but is always prevented from doing so within the supposed courts of justice. That's been the major problem, is getting the evidence before the courts. The article continues, there's a decades-old question about whether in the privacy of his own office or bedroom, now we're in the bedroom, Donald Trump admits to things that he doesn't admit publicly, or whether even when he's staring at himself in the bathroom mirror shaving, he's telling himself the same lies that he tells the rest of us. I don't think we know the answer. It may be an unanswerable question, and that's one of the challenges facing Jack Smith. An indictment is only a partial list of all the evidence prosecutors have gathered, and it's possible that Smith, aiming to protect witnesses or simply as a legal strategy, has not yet revealed key evidence pointing to Trump's understanding that he lost. Other legal analysts called the indictment a masterpiece. It lays out instances in which Trump appears to acknowledge privately that he had lost and there was no legal way to change that. Well, I have to stop there for a second and say, well, yes, Trump did acknowledge that the official election results indicated that he had not achieved the number of votes necessary for him to occupy the White House. In fact, that acknowledgement is part of his long-term strategy to clean out the deep state. And that's something we've talked about in the past, and will again in the future. But the article continues. On New Year's Day 2021, the indictment says Trump spoke to Vice President Mike Pence, who told him that even though the Vice President oversees the certificate of the election results on January 6, Pence did not have the authority to use that ceremonial rule to overturn the election. You're too honest, Trump allegedly replied. The indictment said Trump was notified repeatedly that his claims were untrue, often by the people on whom he relied for candid advice on important matters. Despite that, he deliberately disregarded the truth, it said. Wow. Well, disregarded it? He's desperately trying to get it out to the public by any means he can. And how do the framers of the indictment know what, quote-unquote, the truth is? Remember, we just talked about all this. The truth. The science. You know. <laughs> Trump deliberately disregarded what he knew to be a lie the official electoral results that he wishes to contest. What's the problem? The article continues. Included in the indictment was an email from a key Trump advisor prior to the U.S. Capitol riot on January 6. In the email, the aide called the election fraud claims conspiracy crap beamed down from the mothership. <laughs> there is that UFO and Space Force thing again. And since when do the president's advisors carry any weight in determining what Trump knows and believes? 
That would mean that Trump was obligated to follow the criminal advice of Anthony Fauci and anyone else with such lack of integrity. The reality is that Trump has mountains of evidence of fraud, corruption, conspiracy, and treason against a whole bunch of them. If precedent is anything to go by, it continues, then the latest indictment will mean he not only maintains his support but reinforces it. So far, each time he has been criminally charged, Trump's base has become more entrenched, as have his opponents. Well, first, I'm surprised they even printed this admission. But even so, it is at best a half-truth. Trump's base has not become, quote-unquote, more entrenched, it's growing in leaps and bounds. This is not entrenchment, nor have his opponents become more entrenched than they were before his first election in 2016. They've only become more enraged, if that's possible, in those infected by the Trump derangement syndrome. The previous indictments, says the article, related to possession of classified documents and a hush money payment to porn star Stormy Daniels. Well, Holy cow, that whole deal was too stupid and irrelevant for words. And I'm surprised it didn't mention that woman, you know, who accused Trump of raping her, although it wasn't sexual. We covered all that on the show. But the article continues. After those two cases were brought, he saw a boost in fundraising as he accused Democrats of weaponizing the justice system against him. Within minutes of the latest charges, Trump's campaign sent out an email offering I Stand With Trump t-shirts for $47. <laughs> Well, what does that tell you? Guess who's really in control and having a lot of fun with these indictments? And finally, the charges mean that if Trump is the Republican nominee, which currently seems probable, the chances of any voters switching sides in 2024 become ever more remote. End quote. Well, switching sides from what to what or from who to who, it doesn't even make that clear. In any event, this paid propaganda brought to us by the Daily Telegraph with additional reporting by the Washington Post in their concerted effort to utterly confuse the reality behind the indictments. After all, if you spill the beans, you'll open up a whole can of worms. <laughs> Which is exactly what David Freiheit and Robert Barnes did during their August 7th conversation coming up on this side of our next bumper, and also what Stu Peters did in his August 2nd commentary on the return side. It's a steaming pile of dog sh Robert, how do you make people who are not liars understand that A, this indictment criminalizes free speech. And even if you were of the opinion that you could criminalize speech, which was putting into plan an action to defraud, the law that this is based on is known to contain an ambiguity, a loophole, that Congress in a bipartisan manner right now is trying to remedy. How do you get people to understand? There is indeed a conspiracy afoot to interfere with the people's right to vote. And it's called President Joe Biden, Attorney General uh, Merrick Garland, uh, Assistant Attorney General Lisa Monaco and Special Counsel Jack Smith bringing this indictment. This indictment is the inner conspiracy. And it's a conspiracy that includes federal judges, including the judge presiding over the case, uh, who's already proven her hopeless prejudice in the proceedings. So the, the, the key problem throughout the whole thing is it attempts to criminalize speech, assembly, petition, and attorney-client advocacy. Because that's the entire indictment. There's nothing in the indictment that doesn't fit one of those four actions. Nothing more than tr Trump saying, I believe this election was questionable. 
they keep saying, oh, you filed 60 lawsuits and there's no fraud. It was, you know, there were no Dominion voting machines. Bullcrap. The, the suppression of the Hunter Biden laptop story in and of itself is enough to have vitiated uh, this election from being constitutional. On its face, that's election interference. Therefore, this election or the 2020 was the result of election interference. Uh, talking to the crowd to say, we're going to protest, fight like hell to save your country, but do it peacefully. We are the party of law and order. And they've criminalized all of it or they're oh, attempting yeah. to. It, it's all, I mean, really, the one he's really attacking is the right to petition the government for redress of grievances. And people forget, right to petition for redress of grievances was considered more fundamental than any other right at the time of the American Constitution. Because the what it was is they would keep petitioning the king and the parliament, and king and parliament kept answering it with injury as the Declaration of Independent States. And so the right to petition for redress of grievances, even though Amy Coney Barrett forgot it existed, uh, is right is a critical, essential, and foundational right under the First Amendment. This is a direct attack on the right to petition your government for redress of grievances. If the president can't do it, you sure can't without going to prison. This is a pure attempt to criminalize First Amendment activity and to use Trump to establish the precedent to do it to anyone else. If you make any speech that could impact government agency that the government later determines they don't think was accurate, now you go to prison. That is That would gut all First Amendment protection. Gut it. Eviscerate. If, if this indictment is allowed to go forward, the First Amendment is dead in America. Period. Dead. No. That's how big this case is. Because they have made an issue in this case whether or not the signatures matched in Georgia and whether or not Trump knew that they did, according to the government. They didn't, by the way. I know because I was down there. Well, that's grounds to get them all. Well, Judge, we need to subpoena all the ballots. We need to subpoena all the ballot signatures. We need to have all of it because we're going to prove that, in fact, as a matter of objective truth, the signatures didn't match. And the statement that they didn't match was not only subjectively believed to be true, but also objectively true as a matter of fact. And the same with every other challenge. Wisconsin indefinitely confined. The Wisconsin Supreme Court acknowledged that, in fact, they shouldn't have been voting. How many were there? Ballot signature matches in Arizona. Ballot signature matches in Pennsylvania. All these places where it wasn't done. Let's take a look at it. We need it. Robert, explain to the world who may not know how preposterous or outlandish it is that who were the two judges that were sitting in the courtroom as Trump was brought in? One of them, well, one was Amy Berman Jackson. There were three. Another one was the chief judge. The same Just chief a... judge that was complicit. To give you an idea, by the way, they should also- Why are they there? But why would they be there? None. I've ne no one has ever heard of this. Ever heard of this. In the entire criminal defense world. No one has ever heard of it. They were there they... to say, look at Trump getting arrested. Look at it. They were gleefully there. They, they have no business on the federal bench. And if any Republicans had any either brains or balls, in Congress, then they would be bringing up impeachment on those judges right away. I mean, this is going to get out of hand fast unless lots of people step in and do something about it. Uh, so the, the reality is that this uh, the election was stolen, stolen, old-fashioned stolen. It was done in a, it, it, the uh, constitutionally unqualified people voted, constitutionally unqualified ballots were counted, and they were counted and canvassed in an unconstitutional manner that directly violated the Constitution of the United States. A constitutional conforming election 
undoubtedly, indisputably elected Donald John Trump president of the United States. And any claim otherwise is hogwash. And if they believe their claims, why were they so scared and terrified to even publish the ballots they promised to publish? To let us look at any signatures in any significant scale in any contested state. They know they stole it just like we did. It was obvious from the moment that Donald Trump clinched 270 electoral votes in 2016 that the regime would find any excuse that it possibly could to get Trump out of office and into a prison cell. The only questions were how would they do it? How long would it take? We got the answer for how they would take him out of office in 2020. Mass lockdowns, South Africa-style racial terrorism, mass mail-in voting, mass censorship, and, of course, the removal of any and all barriers against voter fraud. Now, three years later, we're getting to the answer to how they're putting him into prison. And that answer is by literally any and all means available. In spring, Manhattan District Attorney Alvin Bragg tried to make a name for himself by striking first. He charged Trump first with business fraud on the grounds that he covered up hush money payments as legal fees. That's just a misdemeanor, though. So Bragg upgraded it to a felony by saying it was to cover up another crime. According to Bragg, the crime in question was federal campaign finance violations because supposedly by making hush money payments, he was actually making an illegal campaign contribution to himself. But Trump has never been convicted or even charged with any campaign finance violations. So Bragg is prosecuting Trump in state court for allegedly covering up a federal crime That never happened. He's completely making it up out of whole cloth. He's making out of thin air an unprecedented type of prosecution for an unprecedented crime that didn't occur. But of course, that's par for the course with Trump. Then in June, we got the Mar-a-Lago indictments. Merrick Garland's handpicked special counsel, Jack Smith, says Trump should face a maximum of 80 years in prison because he got into a fight with the National Archives over his right to keep random paperwork and memorabilia from his own presidency. Paperwork that the Presidential Records Act explicitly says a former president has full access to. But they didn't stop there, and we knew that they wouldn't. They need a backup plan. And the left is also obsessive by nature, so they're obsessed with January 6th because, of course, they set it up. They need to cover up their role that their own agitators played in stoking that event for murdering four innocent people on that day. And they definitely need to send the message that, hey, in America, violence is only the domain of the left. That was the message of the George Floyd Apalooza riots, of Antifa besieging federal courthouses and ripping down statues with impunity. Let's be clear. The left's position is, We get to do literally anything that we want to get our way, including riot and burn and rob and rape and kill. They viewed a few people trespassing into the Capitol, ushered in by the police, as an intolerable trespass into their territory. Even though practically nobody was hurt, they panicked. What if the masses realize the power that they have is what they thought? So they, of course, have reacted with maximum force. 
That's why they've dragged out every single person who so much as breathed on the Capitol building that day. That's why they've spent years torturing defendants in prison without bail and without a trial, holding them on American soil as prisoners of war. It's why they brought insane charges of seditious conspiracy against people who didn't even go into the Capitol, accusing them of having some detailed and elaborate plan to overthrow the government. And now it's why they're coming for Trump himself, because they have to. Tuesday afternoon, Jack Smith's office charged Donald Trump with four criminal counts related to his efforts to overturn the 2020 election. Charges are conspiracy to defraud the United States, conspiracy to obstruct an official proceeding, obstruction of and attempting to obstruct an official proceeding, and most incredibly, one count of conspiracy against rights. You ever heard of that? That charge is the most insane one, of course, because the crime in question is from just after the Civil War. It was created by a bill called the Ku Klux Klan Act. The purpose of the act was to punish violent terrorists, like Klansmen who assaulted or murdered newly freed slaves to keep them from voting. Earlier this year, the regime repurposed it so that they could use that law to prosecute anybody who makes speech the regime disagrees with on the grounds that misinformation is a way of conspiring against the right to vote. And that's what they're doing here. If you read through this indictment, that's all it is. They take examples of President Trump believing in possible fraud in states like, oh, I don't know, Georgia, Arizona, Wisconsin. And then because some people say that there wasn't any fraud, they claim that Trump is legally required to believe them. Because Trump chose to believe other advisors, they say he's a criminal making knowingly false claims to overthrow the republic. Because he tried to organize alternate slates of electors, something that Democrats, by the way, themselves have done with total impunity within living memory, they say that because he did that, he plotted fraud against the government. In the empire of lies, their alternate electors are just fair play, but ours are criminal. And that's always how they work. That's why we predicted this two and a half years ago. This program predicted that Trump would be indicted. I was called all kinds of names for that by people who are supposedly conservative America first fighters. The whole thing is a crock. And we knew that it would be. It's a calculated political play to take out a person that the regime views as its number one enemy. And it's also an escalation into the empire of lies war against the American people from a regular war to total war. You are the ultimate target. So the regime has decided that Donald Trump will never be president again, period. And that anything goes to keep him down. Ideally with Trump and his supporters in jail. The crisis that the regime is stoking cannot be ended with a simple armistice. No, one side is going to have to defeat the other. They want to crush us. Make no mistake, they have announced they want to defeat us. And so if we're going to defeat them, we need to utterly uproot the entrenched power elite in Washington. All of them. That means cleaning out entire departments where the rot has gone too far. You think a Department of Justice that feels safe bringing charges as flimsy as this ought to be one that we should allow to survive? Absolutely not. Stu Peters would have the support of Robert Barnes on that count. 
He called for the impeachment of all the judges involved with the charges against Trump and for the complete abolishment of the political district of Columbia and its institutions, declaring them all to be unconstitutional. As to the stolen election, not only did the Democrats and the left announce their plans and intention to steal the 2020 election ahead of time, and we cited this intention well ahead of that election on this show, but they also bragged about how they stole the election after the election in the mainstream media. And we covered that at the time as well. But apparently, it's all in Trump's mind. And I found it very significant what Robert Barnes felt was the key issue in the whole political conflict, especially given that I'm a Canadian. Did you notice how Robert Barnes' description of the government's agenda to criminalize the right to petition government to redress a grievance is exactly what was happening in Canada, as evidenced by Canada's current political prisoners and by the events that occurred in Ottawa during the Truckers' Freedom Convoy? Exactly the same issue. The Canadian government wants to criminalize the right to petition it, to redress a grievance. And in that light, it makes every despicable statement made by Justin Trudeau far more understandable, doesn't it? But it was nice to see that Stu Peters gets it. Violence is the only domain of the left. And if he keeps thinking like that, soon he may come to understand that not only is it that, but everything that can be defined as left ultimately relies on the use of violence. Such violence being described and defined as the initiation of the use of physical force. The right also relies on the use of physical force, but is restricted to using such force in the administration of justice and defense, not to enact social policies. Government is a gun and you can't solve social issues like poverty, health care, the provision of education, or any other such objective with a gun. We'll be talking more about the binary and polarized nature of left and right as the show progresses, but it must be noted that once governments become social instruments, they cease to be government, which is why I maintain that we have no government today, merely the remnants of a state on its road to moral and fiscal bankruptcy. Because all they have is a gun, politicians do everything upside down and backwards. For example, in their attempts to cure poverty, they hold committees and investigative efforts to quote-unquote study poverty, instead of looking into the actual means of curing poverty. The cure for poverty, of course, is creating wealth. But we already know how to do that, and the only obstacles to this kind of wealth creation are politicians. They should be studying the creation of wealth, not poverty. But this means capitalism, and they've all been poisoned by their false ideologies to hate the only solution to poverty that the world has ever discovered. A free economy, a capitalist economy, would strip the politicians of their power. Collectivism, in all its forms, is always a war on wealth. Since the solution to every social problem is to rob the proverbial Peter to pay the proverbial Paul. Next thing you know, you've got a country full of Pauls and no Peters which is exactly where we find ourselves today. And another dangerous term in the political lexicon is the term democratic representative. Now, a representative democracy is something we ceased having a long time ago. Today's politicians are no more representatives of the people than they are principled. Over the years, I have discovered a certain irony in my observation that many voters do not like principled politicians because such politicians often push back against views and ideas with which they disagree, like, for example, Donald Trump. 
It's not that Trump lacks principles. It's that he has some, whether you agree with them or not, and about that I'll have much more to say in the closing quarter of the show today. But most voters want their representatives to agree with them and therefore represent their viewpoints in government. And it's a dangerous notion that politicians should represent the interests of the people. Politicians should be representing the rights of the people. And in doing so, politicians should have no more rights or powers than the people they represent in this regard. But as we've seen today, there's one set of laws and rules for the politicians and a completely different set of rules for the ruled. The only possible way for any politician to quote-unquote represent every person in his constituency is to vow to respect and protect individual rights and freedom. That's the only form of legitimate equality and freedom that there is, and it's the only thing that a politician can represent each and every one of his constituents with. As soon as you start talking about interests, in the context of representation, you're in big trouble. For example, as soon as any politician starts to speak quote-unquote, for farmers, or for teachers, or for business, or for labor, the concept of representative government is tossed out the window. The only thing any government can do, quote-unquote, for any specific interest group is to violate the rights of those outside that interest group, either by taxing them to give handouts to the interest group, or by restricting their freedom to grant certain monopolies and cronyism to their favorite interest groups. And in a world of group identities, you can create and identify groups along any imaginable grounds or criteria, whatever, which is why the world of the left is a complete basket case. From race and gender to economic status to you name it, any and all interests qualify for some kind of political status at the cost of everyone's individual rights. Welcome to the woke world of 2023. So before heading back to the binary polarity of left and right, in the context of language and the rhetoric of politics, I thought it wouldn't hurt to check out the definition of those words, language and rhetoric. Many people have a negative response to what we call rhetoric, essentially putting it in the BS category of political speech, which is certainly a reality in many cases, but there's nothing sinister about its dictionary definition. Whereas the definition of language is the expression and communication of emotions or ideas between human beings by means of speech and hearing, the definition of rhetoric is the art of discourse, both written and spoken, the power of pleasing or persuading, affected and exaggerated display in the use of language, the art of prose as distinct from verse. So, you can see why politicians love to use rhetoric and to define words and terms so as to fit their own political agendas and purposes. The language and rhetoric of politics can become a minefield of confusion that leaves people vulnerable to those political interests who understand what the words actually mean. And of course, a rhetorical question is defined as a question put only for oratorial or literary effect, the answer being implied in the question. <laughs> and if there's any single politician who is most associated with political rhetoric, it's got to be Donald Trump. They want to ban straws. Has anybody ever tried those paper straws? They're not working too much. Right? Has anybody ever tried? Seriously, the new straw is made out of paper, right? It disintegrates as you're drinking. If you have a nice tie like this tie, this would have no chance. By the time you get finished, the straw is totally disintegrated. Does anybody walk around with a plastic straw? Because it's not bad. You know, you whip it out, boom, boom. 
You never had to do that. So they want to ban straws. I said, oh, really? What about the cart? What about the plate? What about the knives and the spoons that are plastic? Oh, they're okay. But the straws we got to ban. America, we've got an election coming up in two years uh, with two Republicans that are going to try to kill each other on the way to that election. What do you see in, in both situations? Well, as I said about Trump um, uh, before he got elected in 2016, um, he's being brought in, whether he knows it or not, to divide America uh, because there's a guy um, called Saul Alinsky who is you know, kind of was followed by people like Obama and Hillary Clinton and um, Nancy Pelosi. And he wrote a book called Rules for Radicals. And it was how you take a democratic society basically and turn it into a communist one. And one of the things that he pointed out is that you don't target faceless corporations. You pick up pick out one guy and you target him. You blame him or her, in this case him, for everything. Because it's like the Nazis said, keep your propaganda simple. Don't make it complicated, keep your propaganda simple. It's like the propaganda against me in the Netherlands. He's, a, he's an anti-Semite, he's a Holocaust denier, end of story. Evidence, no, not necessary, just keep saying it. And so Trump came in and it basically America was very quickly divided because um, you had the Trump supporters and then you had people who were vehemently anti-Trump and you created this divide in America. And what they will be planning to do if Trump goes the, the distance into, the, into the, um, the Republican nomination uh, uh, period is they'll seek to do the same. They'll be targeting him as far right or anti-Semitic. It was the last thing he is, by the way. Um, and um, and th they'll go down that road. Uh, and then you have DeSantis. Now, DeSantis, I, I don't know a lot about as a, as a person and his background, and I'll be very interested to see um, what that is. All I can do looking on is to look at what he's done in Florida. And he has done it, whereas Trump has talked about it. And let's not forget, Trump had four years in, in the White House. Um, so he pushed back on lockdown uh, rules and segregation in Florida to the point where it was a, a much more open society than much of the rest of America. He's um, pushed back through laws of sexualizing children in schools, which is massively part of this agenda. That's why they're bringing the, the drag queens out uh, to confuse gender in the young. What better way to confuse gender to have a, a bloke with a beard wearing a dress I have no problem with drag queens, by the way. All the best. Do what you like, so long as you don't impose it on anyone else. But that's what's happening. It's bit, they're being used to 
uh, confuse gender in the young for a, a much longer term agenda that I've written about in the books for years. Um, and he's also, uh, through law in Florida, pushed back on the castration and mutilation of children, children in the name of transgender surgery. So I, I look at, and you know, he's, he's challenged a lot of things, um, literally challenged them, not just talked about it. So on that basis, um, you know, uh, my jury's out on him because I don't know his, his background and all that yet, but certainly on the face of what he's done in Florida, he's done it while Trump's talked about it. You're listening to Just Right, broadcasting around the world and online. That was David Icke, a commentator I like very much, but unfortunately I disagree with that assessment we just heard. But the observation that got my attention was that Trump divided America. I think he's confusing cause and effect. Trump's election merely exposed the already and long-existing divide that was not visible to people because both the Republican and Democrat parties were essentially on the left. Trump's election offered voters an option on the right, and suddenly the country appeared divided. Political polarization is a good thing, a point on which both Ayn Rand and Saul Alinsky would agree. Which brings us back to the binary. To address this principle further, I'd like to move immediately to our next audio bite featuring another individual I like, but whose opinions you are about to hear I disagree with entirely. Yaron Brook, director of the Ayn Rand Institute, has been a guest on this show and has also spoken at Freedom Party of Ontario Functions. And in those instances where he was speaking about economics and capitalism, he was right on the money, if you'll pardon the pun. However, in his recent presentation at Ocon 2023 on August 6th, I found myself disagreeing with his views on left and right, and in particular with his assessment of the situation between Ukraine and Russia. On this side of the upcoming bumper are edited excerpts from that presentation, while on the return side, we'll hear Brooks' response to a question concerning left and right during the Q&A part of the presentation. I think the war in Ukraine is a conflict of civilizations. It's a conflict of a vision about the future, of the kind of political world we want to live in, and the kind of world we want to live in. It is a conflict that is challenging to Western civilization. It is a conflict that challenges everything good that I think we have in our world. And to the extent that Russia wins this conflict, to that extent, our horizon shrinks in terms of the time we have to change the world. To the extent that Russia fails, we buy some time to change our own world. Now, I want to I wanna do uh, just a, a, a little bit of terminology before I go on, because I'm, I'm going to use some terminology that might be a little different than the way some other people use it, different than the way Ayn Rand used it, so I, I, I need to clarify that in advance. I'm going to be talking about left and right, but I'm going to be talking about left and right differently than I think often is discussed. For me, left is egalitarian collectivism, with everything that implies woke and everything else you want to add into that. I think you understand what left is. But right, the way I'm going to use it, and the way today I think about it, is nationalist religious collectivism. 
In that sense, I don't believe objectivism is right. You can ask me about it in the q and I'm not going to get into a whole debate right now about it, but that's how I'm going to use it. When I talk about the West, for the purposes of this talk, we could talk about other purposes. You could use it a little differently. For the purposes of this talk, I'm going to refer to Western Europe and the United States. When I talk about Western civilization, I'm referring to the ideas of the Enlightenment, the ideas that I believe have made the West the civilization. And I, three big ideas, reason, individualism, and political liberty, political freedom, capitalism. So we have now a, a much stronger West from the perspective of, of Russia. And maybe in the most shocking of all is the fact that NATO members in Europe who never used to spend any money on military, on defense, are now substantially increasing their budgets. So Germany is committing to spending 2% of GDP on the military for the first time. Europe is going to become much more independent militarily because of this war. So this has been a complete disaster. Something, of course, the Russians can't admit. But you saw it last weekend with uh, Pogosin. First, he came on, he came on a, a YouTube video and he told us that the war was not really about NATO or anything like that. What he said the war was about, just a little, you know, I, I didn't include this reason. He said it was just... It was just the Russian mafia, basically. The Russian oligarchs wanting to steal all the Ukrainian stuff. But what we saw last weekend was in addition to everything else that has set Russia back, Putin has been set back. What we saw last week when it was the first real challenge to Putin in over 20 years. Putin is on thin ice. He is much weaker today than he was when the war started. So Russia has failed. It has failed to achieve all of its strategic goals, except maybe for one. And that is that it seems like its friends in the West are still strong. They're still supportive of Putin. They're still embracing, call it the Russian way. And this is maybe the most shocking thing about this war. Everything else I kind of could get a grip on. But the amount of support Russia and Putin have in this country and in, the, and in Western Europe, but primarily in this country, is truly astounding and truly shocking. But then if you read Putin, and you read about how he's anti-woke and how he's anti-left, it kind of starts fitting in. If your perspective on the world is right versus left, and the left is really evil, and therefore anything you do to combat the left is good, then Putin is your hero. He stands up to the left, he talks the talk, and he walks the walk. Russia is appealing to vast segments of the American right, sadly. They like the authoritarianism, the tough guy, the president who doesn't wear a shirt and rides a horse. You think, you think RFK is posing without a shirt on accidentally? And by the way, this is left and right, because RFK, right? Um, they like the strength the manliness of a Putin, the sheer force of his character. He stands up to the West. He stands up to the leftists. And there are many in this country who admire that. So the West, the West is threatened today. We know this. If we talk about Western civilization, if we talked about the ideas, 
of reason, individualism, capitalism, the West is under attack, under attack from the left and under attack from the right. And we, who I think represent best what Western civilization really is philosophically, we face a two-front battle, a two-front battle facing the collectivists of both sides, the mystics of both sides, the statists of both sides. Oh, the Russian war on Ukraine is a manifestation of one of those battles that we are fighting today, the battle we fight with the right. Russia represents for the right what kind of an ideal state looks like, hearkening back to all those traditional values and religious values and mystical values. To the extent Russia wins, I don't think that's possible at this point, but to the extent that it could win, that will embolden those elements on the right in the United States and in Europe, make them stronger. They will get more support from Russia. Russia already funds many of these political parties in places like Europe, the right-wing nationalist parties, the right-wing religionist parties. A Russian victory is a victory for the new right. It is a victory for the worst kind of right. A Russian loss doesn't guarantee us anything, but it buys us some time. It buys us some time to fight these enemies that we must fight. It buys us this time to educate the world about the alternative to the left and the right, an alternative to the collectivism, the mysticism, and the statism that they represent. It buys us some time to save Western civilization. Thank you. No, look, I, I, my view is there's only one political spectrum. And I, I don't like the quadrants and all that because, because the, the terms, the way you define them is everything. And, and they're defined in ways that are not objective. But the political spectrum is individualism, collectivism. Capitalism, statism. And I think it forks when you get to collectivism because there are many forms of collectivism. There's only one form of individualism at the end of the day. But there are many forms of collectivism. So it forks into left-style collectivism and right-style collectivism and middle-of-the-road nothingness-style of collectivism. You get all the different varieties. And then you get some people who are not objectivists, who are generally on the individualist line. They're not quite as consistently objective about what individualism means and what it applies to limited government and how it... But you get some people over there, called the classical liberals maybe, right, that are, that are a little bit on the individualism side. And then there's us. And we're pretty alone over here. There's not a lot of people over here that have a true understanding of what individualism is because you cannot have a proper political understanding of individualism without a proper understanding of individualism as a moral concept and therefore as egoism. So, and that's why we're alone here because no, nobody else has that moral concept. So that to me is the spectrum. And, uh, you know, in, and I think 40, 50 years ago, the right, there were elements of the right, there were significant elements, not minor elements, significant elements of the right that believed in individual rights or, or at least some v view of individual rights that were on this spectrum towards individualism. So you could say the right represents ultimately individualism. I think those elements on the right are so small today and the dominant of the right is collectivism that to use that terminology is just confusing. It's confusing in your own mind and I think it's confusing for the audience that doesn't quite understand it. So you say, I'm not 
on the right as you understand it today, and I'm not on the left as you understand it today. I'm an individualist. I'm a capitalist. I'm a free market guy. Thank and you. Nobody else is. Wow, I was agreeing with all of what Brooke was saying about the political spectrum until he got to the end. It's remarkable that he was able to see the polarity about which we've been talking about on this show since forever, but failed to establish any clear identity in terms of what even he has identified as only two sides. In other words, a political polarity. But instead of choosing to reclaim the polarity of politics that we call the right, he abandoned it which leaves those on the side of freedom and individualism without any clear political label or identity. A polarized label is made necessary in a world of politics where every choice made and vote cast ultimately boils down to some binary, irrespective of the myriad of variables on the left. Left and right properly pertain to ideas and to philosophies only, not to people as such, even though people may associate themselves with one or the other. Part of the inability to arrive at the clarity of polarity is the use of the word spectrum. A spectrum represents multiple options, as in the spectrum of light that extends from infrared to ultraviolet, and sounds and frequencies can be described in the same manner. But the only thing qualifying as a spectrum in politics is entirely on the left, where one can choose between socialism, communism, fascism, and yes, even libertarianism, I dare say, and have said on many a past broadcast. And I speak from experience, having in the past been a federal candidate for the Libertarian Party of Canada. And while his left-right dismissal was only a partial train wreck, Brooks' analysis of the situation between Ukraine and Russia was a total train wreck. I honestly couldn't believe what I was hearing. He was simply wrong on just about 100% of what he was saying. Not a single acknowledgement of the actual circumstances on the ground in Ukraine that have been made clear by numerous credible and informed reporters and military observers in the alternate media. Nor has he heard any of the latest revelations about Putin from people who know him. In other parts of his presentation that we did not play here today, he expressed his dislike of Putin for supporting values like the family and religion, and considers Tucker Carlson a complete liar about everything, etc., 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 to the point where, according to Brooke, Carlson's popularity represents a major threat to America. And, of course, he hates Donald Trump and everything that Trump did, except for what he did in Israel, and actually said that Biden has been better than Trump on almost all counts. What can I say? You know, every economist I've ever met in the political world has been a train wreck when it comes to politics. For economists, economic efficiency and profitability are the standard of all that is good, and efficiency is best achieved through free markets and allowing the law of supply and demand to reign supreme, and in this narrow regard, they are absolutely correct. I wouldn't take a thing away from them. On a recent past broadcast, during which I discussed my own personal encounter with the father of libertarianism, Murray Rothbard, in September of 83, you wouldn't be able to find a more brilliant economist anywhere. But his libertarian politics boiled down to anarchism, the more freedom through less government bromide that makes no sense in light of the fact that we have virtually no government now. And how's that working out? <laughs> One of the economic criticisms I routinely hear from various libertarians, conservatives, and free market types is that they hate Trump because he imposes tariffs and trade restrictions on certain nations. 
what they apparently fail to understand about Trump is that Trump feels the same way as they do about tariffs and barriers. And he said so loud and clear when he was in Canada during his presidency, attempting, irony of ironies, to get the Canadian government to end their state-controlled marketing boards in the areas of beef, dairy, and poultry. And while in Canada, he loudly and unequivocally proclaimed that he supports wide open markets, no tariffs, no barriers, no government subsidies. And that we featured on a past broadcast of this show. We also featured an audio bite of broadcaster and podcaster Glenn Beck about his personal conversation with Trump, during which Beck told Trump that he disagreed with tariffs under any circumstances. But Trump told him, quite straightforward, that they'll have to agree to disagree, explaining why he felt he had to use those methods. And Beck walked away from that experience with a greatly increased degree of respect for Trump, he said, because Trump did not resort to any mealy-mouthed rhetoric trying to please him. For Trump, tariffs and other various trade barriers are his negotiating tool in an effort to get America's trading partners to relinquish their own similar restrictions on trade. It's the art of the deal, don't you know? So the great irony is that Trump employs tariffs and the like based on the same principle that those who oppose tariffs say they support. But if you're looking for some kind of perfection at the cost of throwing out the ideal, then you're only hurting yourself in the process. You know, in the end, and like it or not, or hate it or not, a political solution is the only long-term means to achieve a peaceful, prosperous society, otherwise known as a free society. And if we don't understand that the way to freedom is to follow the political compass in the right direction, we'll never get there as we wander through the leftist deserts of ever-shifting political sand. And like it or not, hate it or not, politics is also the means to tyranny. In politics, force is what is governed. And to win any war for freedom, you cannot avoid becoming politically involved, at some level at least. You may not be interested in politics, but politics is always interested in you because you become the political tool of others if you are not aware of these fundamental principles and don't take some kind of effective action. Effective political action, to tell you the truth, is very boring and routine stuff, far removed from the drama of protests, campaigning, and giving speeches, far removed from the rhetoric Stuffing envelopes, delivering pamphlets and literature door-to-door, phoning contacts, collecting email and snail mail addresses, and doing so consistently and constantly as in the consideration of the eternal vigilance required to protect freedom from its enemies. And of course, always speaking to the truth at every opportunity through open debate and freedom of speech which we shall do when you join us again next week as we continue our journey in the right direction. And until then, be right, stay right, do right, act right, think right, and be right back here. We'll see you then. Fade into color, color into black and white. Under the bedclothes, everything will be alright. So, what's going to happen? Well, there's only one answer. The Bank of England must bail out Philip's parents and no publicity, keep it in the family. That way we get our money back. At the taxpayer's expense? Of course. Can it be done? All depends on the new governor of the Bank of England. Well, he hasn't been appointed yet. I know. That's what I wanted to talk about. Who's it going to be? Well, it hasn't been decided, but um, I understand from the PM that the frontrunner is going to be Alexander Jameson. You're joking. No. But that's impossible. You mean he's too honest? Just that he behaves honestly. <laughs> that doesn't matter. Some of my best friends behave honestly. 
Rather than smart enough to get away with it. But... Jameson actually tries to stop dishonesty. 